Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we need you and want you. Work in our lives by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Saving up for items to buy has fallen on hard times in our society. With the advent and rise of the credit card and lines of credit and store credit, people are more likely to buy now and pay later. In the generation previous to mine, people would either save up their money before they bought something, or they would use a program called Layaway. In the Pixar film Up, Carl and Ellie are pictured as saving up their money so that they could buy their dream of building a house on Paradise Falls. When they were really small and early in their relationship, uh, Ellie made Carl promise, made him cross his heart, promise that he would bring her to Paradise Falls. And so this was their whole thing. And the storyline at the beginning of the film displays in little snippets their progressing life together. And they have this glass jug that they start putting quarters and dimes and dollars in. It was their Paradise Falls jug. And at a number of occasions in this little brief survey of their lives together, you'd see the necessities of life getting in the way, and they would have to break that jug. They have to break it and spend it on what they needed. And by the time they were very old, Carl finally decides, essentially, it's now or never. And he goes to a travel agent, he books the trip, he has the tickets in hand, he puts it in a a picnic basket, tucked away, and brings Ellie to their favorite little picnic site. And, and they're pictured climbing up that hill, and, and Carl's up there first, which was never the case. It was always Ellie first. And she's struggling to get up the hill. And the very next scene is her in a hospital bed, reading a book, and him floating in a little balloon with a little scroll on it, just be, kind of being cute. And the scene after that is the funeral home. Too little, too late. It was at that point in the film that my daughter said, this is, I took, them, I took my, my three bigs now, they were little at the time, to, to watch this in the theater, and my wife was away. And my daughter said, I want to leave. <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> they had waited, and they had dreamed, and they had saved, but it was too little, too late. Friends, Too many people think about their spiritual journey in terms of adding a few bucks here and there to a jar. And certainly, after you add up all of my contributions, I should be in good standing. Well, Paul, in his testimony to the church of Philippi, has something to say about this standing before God based upon your accumulation of goods. I want to ask you this morning, and I hope that this will ring in our ears as we consider this text, are you building a spiritual debt or have you obtained a priceless treasure? Are you accumulating a spiritual debt or have you obtained a priceless treasure? As Paul begins this, I think we can see two main areas 
that he could have found confidence in. And I want for us to start, of course, by reading the text of Scripture. We'll start in verse 3 for the context. It says, For we are the circumcision. That is another way of saying we are the true Christians. We are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit or worship by the Spirit of God and glory, rejoice in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh, my own activities. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So stop right there for a moment. In verse 3, and twice in verse 4, he brings up this idea of confidence in the flesh. Now he's not talking about the body. He's not talking about the fact that I have muscle or fat. He's talking about my efforts to gaining approval with God. We have no confidence that our efforts will give us a good standing with God. And he says in verse 4, if anyone thinks he can have confidence that he's accruing a credit with God, I want to tell you that I've got you beat. Well, that sounds kind of pompous. Sounds kind of cocky. And in a sense, it is. We're not going to shy away from the fact that that sounds pretty pompous. He goes on to describe in verses 5 and 6 why it is that from a fleshly standpoint, from a religion standpoint, from a gaining credit from a manly or a human standpoint, he has the prime position. Verse 4, look what it says. Verse 5, excuse me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He lays out his credentials. And the first question I think that we can see this categorized in is, are you confident because of your heritage? Are you confident before the Lord Because of your heritage. Well, I'm an Italian, or I'm an Englishman, or I'm a Scotsman, or I'm I'm a whatever. I'm I'm a Latin American. Whatever your heritage is, does that give you some inside track to a home in heaven? Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I'm not a proselyte. I didn't come to this as a Johnny come lately. I'm not from a Gentile family and have come into the Jewish religion. I am from a Jewish family that held tightly to the standards of the law. He goes on in verse 5, of the people of Israel. Now, at first glance, you think, well, isn't that saying the same thing? Well, he's, he's narrowing something in, and you'll see he's honing in in these credentials. When he says, I'm from the people of Israel, or I'm of Israel, he's letting us know he's not just from Abraham. You know, Abraham had two main sons, right? You've got Isaac and Ishmael. Who did the blessing go through? Isaac. Well, then Isaac then has some children, right? Some of them became the Edomites. Are those the people of God, so to speak? No. From from Isaac came Jacob. And you remember what happened when Jacob had a wrestling match with God one day? He says, your name shall be... Israel. And so we've got this refining down. He's not generically of the people of God. He is specifically of the people of God. 
and to really get a, a sense of it, I want for us to reference, it'll be on the screen, we don't have time to turn to many scripture passages this morning, um, hopefully you can jot some things down and, and look at them later, but in Romans chapter 9, Paul has the same concept in his mind, listen to what he says, they are Israelites, like I am, to them belongs what? The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So when he says, I am of the people of Israel, he is giving himself a great spiritual credential from a human standpoint. He hones in a little bit further. He says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. So now we have more specificity coming forth about his descent. It was from the tribe of Benjamin that Israel's first king was anointed. You remember him? What was his name? What was, what was Paul's Jewish name? Ding, 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 ding. I come from the tribe of Benjamin where my predecessor, Saul, now not everyone would be so proud of Saul except that he was the first king of Israel. So that, that kind of gives you a little credential, no? I'd say it does. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So, there's several ways you can look at this, but I think the most specific way is, I am a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. I am a pure Jew. I am a pure Israelite. I am the purest of the pure. You might also notice in in some of the book of Acts, when Paul is being spoken about, about giving his testimony or, or speaking before people, oftentimes he will speak in the Hebrew tongue, even though he was from a Grecian area where he was born in Tarsus. They would have mostly spoken Greek. But Paul, because of his heritage, had not only learned Greek, but he had also learned Hebrew because it was the mother tongue of their very important religion. So from a a human standpoint, Paul has these great credentials. He had confidence because of his heritage. These characteristics speak to Paul's pride in his heritage. He was from the best of the best in family heritage. So, does that save a person? Young person. Are you saved because your parents know the Lord? Are you saved because they sing to you, Jesus loves me, this I know? Are you saved because they bring you to church? Because they open God's Word with you and have family devotions? Or maybe even because they've trained you and now daily you open your Bible and you read, does that make you a Christian? Does that make you one who is of the family of God? The answer to these things is an emphatic no. Those are elements of your heritage. Heritage does not save. Heritage cannot save. No one is saved because of what physical family they were born into. We must, listen, we must be born into the family of God. This takes place upon realizing that you are sinner, that I am a sinner. It comes to place when I repent of my sin and my way and turn to Christ for salvation. When we turn away from our sin and toward God for salvation, we become a a child of God, a member of the family of God. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Are you confident 
and you're standing before God because of your heritage? Well, I think the answer to that should be an emphatic no. Secondly, just as importantly, are you confident because of your effort? Are you confident because of your effort? Well, every day since I was a child, I've opened my Bible. Every day since I was a child, I've gone to church on Sunday. And, and if there's other, other opportunities at church, I go to those church services. And if there's a, a day to serve at the church, I go and I serve at the church. Does this make you a Christian? It cannot. It cannot. And yet, Paul says, if you want to compare resumes... My efforts will outdo you. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Actually, it's the very last uh, line of verse 5. As to the law of Pharisee. Now, when you think of that, you get like a negative thought in your mind, right? Maybe a little sick in your stomach. Like you would not want for someone to call you a Pharisee. You think, ooh, I must be giving off the wrong vibe if people look at me and think of me as a Pharisee. They think that I want to judge everyone else and, I, and I, I only think of other people's problems and I never see my own. That, that's what you automatically think of, right? Well, in the, in the first century, this was a highly acclaimed position, highly esteemed position to be a Pharisee. When Paul said, I was a Pharisee, he's giving a credential, not something to make your stomach sick. Paul was trained at the feet of the highly acclaimed Gamaliel. As it says in Acts 22, when he's giving his, his testimony before the people, he says, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought into the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And so he's letting him know, listen, I've got the religious world at my fingertips. I am doing everything necessary to be seen at the top of the heap. He goes on and he says, if you really want to know how zealous I was, in verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Now, what distinguishes being a Pharisee from being a Christian? Well, the Pharisees were adherents to the law and strict adherence to the law, and a Christian is one who is a strict adherent to Christ. In fact, we come to Jesus completely absent of anything to offer. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. And we follow Christ. We, we cling to, we know, we embrace, and we follow Christ. And here, Paul as a Pharisee, was a persecutor of the way. It says in Acts 22 and verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He was zealous above his equals. He was at the the top of the heap. He was the cream of the crop. If anyone else has reason to have confidence in the flesh, I have more. And you think that's good? You think that gives you good standing? Well, let let me just wrap this up with a pretty little bow. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He essentially said, 
I held so fastidiously to the traditions of the fathers that I am considered by those in the know as though I have perfectly kept the law. I followed all the traditions that I was taught, that I have learned and studied. I have followed them to the letter. I am blameless. From the standpoint of the religious world, he was a rising star. Can you picture, can you think in your mind of some rising star, whether it be in the sports world, in the music world, in the entertainment world, or in the religious world? You you see them, and they're rising up, and you just know, you you can feel it coming, right? You can feel it coming. You can see it. People are starting to kind of cater to them. I remember when LeBron James first started playing basketball, before before he even, even came into the NBA, everyone was calling him the king. How do you call this guy? He's not even 18 years old. He's the king. But yet, he came into the league and everyone could see what was happening. And to this day, he's as good as anyone else in the basketball world. He's a rising star. This is Paul in the religious world. You can't match him. You can't even hope to hold his coattail. Nor can I. He's a rising star. Look at how faithful I am. Well, you can't really out-effort Paul. Here's the problem. Ready? You and I cannot overcome original sin. You and I cannot overcome our first problem. Let me tell you when your first problem came. You ready? Before you breathe your first breath. Listen to what David says in Psalm 51. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not saying that his mother was a harlot. I was born a sinner. I was a sinner at conception. That's our first problem. We really have two problems. We are sinners by birth, and then, to compound that problem, we are sinners by choice. Sinners by birth, sinners by choice. Our efforts can never overcome sin. Let me say it this way, and we're gonna, hopefully this is going to flesh its way out through the, through the text. But not only can you not, by your efforts, overcome sin, your efforts in conjunction with Jesus cannot overcome your sin. Your efforts added to Jesus cannot overcome your sin. We'll see this very clearly from the text. Paul said this in Galatians 2.16, and he, he's so emphatic, he's, he's very repetitious. There are two things that he repeats in this. One concept is that you can't be justified by works. He repeats that twice. And three times justification comes by faith. In one verse of Scripture, listen to what he writes. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, what does it say? No one. You said it. By the works of the law, no one, no one, no one will be justified. Not Paul. Not me. Not you. Not great uncle Phil. No one will ever be justified by the works 
of the law. It is absolutely impossible. This leads us nicely to our third area from Philippians chapter 3, and that is this. You accrue spiritual debt when you rely on your own resources. You accrue, add up, spiritual debt when you rely on your own resources. People think that they are adding a few bucks to their savings jug so they can make it to Paradise Falls. And Paul wants to tell us something. God wants to tell us something in verses 7 and following. Listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There is a downward trajectory to what he is saying. He is, he is piling up, but in the wrong direction. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted, that's in the perfect tense, counted, that means this is something that, that happened in the past that has continuing results. I counted as loss. So here I had this, this great heap that I wanted to compare myself with others, and I was at the top, and I realized at one point when I met Jesus, that all of that is loss, and I continue to understand it as loss. He goes on and he says, Indeed, I count, there's present tense, I am counting everything that I contribute as loss. Every effort I give is loss. Everything I do is adding in the wrong column. Then he goes on, he really drives it home further. I have suffered, that's the aorist tense, that's a one-time, in-the-past event. I have suffered the loss of all things, and count, there's present tense, I am suffering, I am counting them as rubbish. He has turned the tables. The chart has been flipped over. Well, all these things I thought were helping me, but the reality is, they didn't help me at all. They were counting against me. They were lost. What in the world are you talking about? When you are adding to the savings jug and you have a disaster, and use the hammer to get the money out, you're back to even. This is not, this is not what Paul is saying. He didn't say you added, 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 added. Oh, and I slipped up and I did a bad naughty. Psh, oh, back to even. No. You're adding and adding, and adding, and adding, it's quite a bit worse. Every deposit you make into the jug is like incurring a debt. Here I am, God. I'm doing what you want. Aren't you pleased with me? I've brought you a basket of fruit. Why are you mad with me? Why don't you accept my offering? We're doing it our way. We're doing it the human way. We're doing it the tradition way. We're doing it the religion way. Every deposit is incurring a deeper and deeper and deeper debt. Every gain is actually a loss. Everything is loss. I have lost it all. Worse than that. Worse than that. I have been erecting a house filled to the brim with dung. I asked my son, this week, Drew, what would you rather have? An empty room or a room filled with dung? 
What do you think he said? He said, I'd rather have the empty room. I said, I, I thought I knew the answer to this. Imagine, folks, you're offered a house. You can have it free of charge from the bottom floor in the basement all the way to the attic. Every room is completely packed with dog poop. What do you think? Well, I've got a shovel. You start messing around. He, he, he literally uses the word excrement. Animal or human excrement. This is just bad news. He has really gone into the gutter with this. You want to know why he's so willing to go this far? Because someday, you and I will stand before our judge. And there you'll be. And if you're holding to your righteous efforts and your spiritual contributions, you'll bring those to the table. And Jesus, the judge, may ask you a question like this. I really don't know. But it's one of those proverbial questions. Why should I let you into my heaven? And you can roll up your wheelbarrow. Here, here is all the work I've done in your name. Here is all of my contribution. And then, in that moment, your eyes are opened to see what it really looks like. You just rolled up a wheelbarrow filled with dog poop and said, here, let me in. What do you think the response will be? I don't want that. I have no interest in that. Do you think that this is a logical comparison? Well, Paul makes it here. And Jesus uses it without the excrement in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, folks, this ought to, this ought to give you some great sobriety. Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen to what he says. You workers of sin. Lawlessness. Ah, nomia. Ah, against, without. Noma, nomia. Law, against law. You workers of sinfulness. No, what was the sin? Lord, Lord. Here I am, God. I'm working for you. Look at me. Look at how far I've come. Look at what I've accomplished. The world would be so much worse if I weren't here. Oh, really? I'm thinking your addition of a barrel of horse dung is not really making that great of a contribution. You know what makes a difference? When you hold up for people the greatest treasure. When you hold up to people the priceless treasure. And you're not it. And I'm not it. I am not the priceless treasure. We, collectively, are not the priceless treasure. No one will enter heaven based upon their efforts. Paul couldn't do it, and you couldn't do it. Your efforts do not yield a zero balance. Your efforts yield a debt and bankruptcy. This is bad news and good. When we come to the place of recognizing our spiritual debt or our spiritual bankruptcy, we are right in that place where Jesus spoke to his disciples on the mount. Remember the Beatitudes? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. 
Blessed are those who recognize that when they come to the table, they bring only debt and nothing positive. See, what's wonderful, and it's kind of one of these things we have to hold in tension, is I am nothing and offer nothing, and yet God loves me. God, God thinks of me. It says that in Psalm 139, that his thoughts are more than the number of the sand on the sea. God thinks about me. And he has visited me. You know what that means? He's, he's come to make a provision for me. See, we recognize I don't have anything to bring to the table. And yet God has reached into history to snatch a lowly, sinful, spiritually bankrupt person like me. This is incredible. When you and I think we're adding, adding into our spiritual account by our efforts, we're really subtracting and going bankrupt and making ourselves in debt. Whenever we are in competition with the work of Jesus Christ, we are in bad position. And so we don't compete, we yield. When we realize that our efforts bring us into spiritual debt, we have to look elsewhere for the gain column. And so we come to our last area of our consideration from Philippians 3 this morning. You need, like I do, you need the priceless treasure. You need the priceless treasure. Listen to now how he has cased these concepts in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, will you say it with me? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Will you say the rest with me? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Say this next with me. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, And be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's talking about Christ's sake. He's talking about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's talking about Christ's sake again in verse 8. And then he says, I count it all rubbish. It's all dung in order that I may gain Christ. And the same concept, be found in Him. Be found in Him. To be united with Him. You see, verses 4, 5, and 6 are all about the name of the individual who is special. If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm special. Verses 7 through 9, or really through 11, are about God. Now in 4 through 6, where we see this person being special, there is a yield that comes with that. Spiritual bankruptcy and spiritual debt. When we see the the surpassing worth of Christ in verses 7 through 11, there is also a yield with that. That yield is treasure beyond words. What does it mean to gain Christ? That I may gain Christ. I I count it all rubbish. That I may gain Christ. He really is giving us a parallel concept with knowing Christ. And really, another parallel concept in verse 9, being found in Christ. Being found in Christ. United together with Christ. This, This treasure, this gain, is about being in union with Christ. William Hendrickson wrote this, Paul wished to make Christ more and more fully his own. As long as one keeps clinging, even in the slightest degree to his own righteousness, he cannot fully enjoy Christ's righteousness. The two simply do not go together. 
The one must be fully given up before the other can be fully appropriated. I'm going to leave that there for a moment. Please consider. It's not Christ plus. It's not Christ and. It is Christ alone. It is Christ alone. That is my only hope. It is my only standing. It is my only solace. He is my only righteousness. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. In fact, two parables back to back that I want to bring to your attention. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, two different parables, both about the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The concept is not about the purchasing. It's not about the the getting rid of. It's about recognizing this is the one thing. This is the one thing. There's nothing that compares with it. Everything else can go away if I have this one thing. It's enough. Is Christ your greatest treasure? Or is He just a treasure among others? If He's he's one of many treasures, I I don't think you know Him. If you can compare something with him and say, well, it's kind of close, or "Eh, it rates, you don't understand. Everything you have, everything you have is going away. Think of your most prized earthly possession. I hope it's a person. They're going away. Some of you know what that means. Some of you know what that feels like. You've lost someone. It's hard to swallow. Every earthly relationship, every earthly possession comes to an end. Jesus is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternally God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. There is no exhausting Him. He is the priceless treasure. When we are united with Him, that means you know to be in Him, when we're united with Him, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is essentially what Paul says in Philippians 3.9. Look there again. This is what I want. I'm willing to give up everything. Everything compares as rubbish, as dung, as inconsequential, as debt compared to the gain of Christ, verse 9, which is equated with being found in Him, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that I have attained through law-keeping that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes, a righteousness that comes through faith, where? In Christ. It's the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This righteousness that comes from God is the only item that grants us access to an eternal home in heaven. The righteousness that Paul is speaking of here that comes from God, dependent on faith in Christ, is the only thing, only item that gains access to heaven. It's not something that you have attained through your fastidious efforts. 
It's not something that's been granted to you because you were born into a particular family. It's something that is granted to you by God by His gracious endowment of faith in Christ. Have you trusted Christ? He gives us His righteousness. This righteousness only comes through repentance of our sinful, spiritually indebted way and faith in Christ who is the giver of this gift. It is not about our heritage. I love this now. It's not about our heritage. You can know it because of what he says here, right? But I want to bring you in your mind into a heavenly scene. I think it's probably... Philippians 3.9 is, is probably my favorite gospel verse. And Revelation 5, 9, and 10 are probably my favorite result of the gospel verse. Because it gives us a scene in heaven that is just breathtaking. Revelation 5, 9, and 10, here's what God's Word says. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, And by your blood you ransomed people for God, listen carefully, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they, all of them, every tribe, nation, language, people, and group, they shall reign on the earth with the Lord. This is a result of the gospel. Whose heritage matters? Your heritage matters because if you trust Christ, that heritage is included there. That heritage doesn't bring you into salvation. That heritage is represented in heaven. The heritage doesn't get it done. But God brings people from every heritage into his presence the same way through Christ. It's not about our heritage. It's not about our effort. We already mentioned Galatians 2.16. We won't reiterate it here. It's about God's gift. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is eternal life in or through union with Jesus Christ our Lord. Through faith, we have received the righteousness that is from God in Philippians 3, 9. Through faith, we have come to Know Christ, the beginning of Philippians 3.9. Through faith we have gained, gained Christ, Philippians 3.8. To gain Jesus Christ is to gain the Father also. To gain Jesus Christ is to gain the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. To gain Jesus Christ is to gain eternal life in heaven. What will that be like? What will it be like not to have one anxiety, one care, one pain, one sorrow, one tear, one anything other than joy and glory and majesty and rejoicing in your heart? What will that be like? We don't know. We have little glimmers of it that God gives us here on the earth because he's given us a down payment of it in the person of his spirit. But fullness unending joy in the presence of God, we can only imagine. Friend, are you accruing a spiritual debt by relying upon yourself and your efforts? Or have you gained, have you gained the priceless treasure? Paul tells us how. It's through faith in Christ. It results in the greatest 
privilege is to know, gain, and be with and in Christ forever. Let's pray together. Father, undoubtedly, our minds are all thinking similar, but maybe different things. You know each one of us. You know what we need. And we pray in this moment that by Your power, the power of the Gospel, and by Your Spirit, You would accomplish spiritual work. Father, for any, anyone who has never gained Christ, we beg You that it would be in accordance with Your will that You would grant unto them life eternal, that they would see the glory of the Gospel and cling to Christ, the greatest treasure, and today have righteousness added to their account and assurance of eternal salvation. Father, for those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, help us, help us to recognize that nothing compares. Help us not to forget that the treasure of Christ is worth the loss of everything else. I pray for anyone that is stubbornly, obstinately refusing. Dear God, in your mercy, please break down that resistance and give them life by your Spirit. We pray these things in the great name, the powerful name, the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.